You are listening to Faith Church's sermon from this week. We are a church that is committed to loving Jesus for life and loving others to life. We hope that this message encourages you to follow Jesus with your whole heart. Now, yes, Dave did just read from Ephesians, but I'm going to, if you have your Bibles in front of you, or if you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you, turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and turn to chapter 3. We have turned the page. We have now on chapter 3, we are looking at our, I believe, our fourth church this morning. Um, might be fifth. Um, but uh, Pergamum, Ephesus. Yeah, th- fourth. Um, so, uh, Anyway, it is in this time that we are looking at these letters to the church. Now, why do we do this? Because we want to learn what it is that it looks what what it is that Jesus says about these churches because it says something to us. Now, automatically, one of the things that we will say is is that I wonder which one we are. Like which one which one does this faith church kind of tend to lean towards? Um, you know, I'm wrestling with the fact, I'm praying over the fact, I, I don't have an opinion on that, but I'm praying on that. Like, do I want to announce that at the end of the, you know, if I, if I had to say something after eight years of being your pastor, this is where I think you tend to lie? Um, I don't know if I'm going to do that or not. I've seen other pastors do it, and it's been done well, but um, I think I might uh, just leave that for you to figure out. Um, but all that to be said, that we are in this letters to the church And today, we are in the church of Sardis. And here's what John MacArthur, while I don't agree with him on everything that he preaches, I do like his illustration about this passage of Scripture. Here's Here's what he says. He talks about the phenomenon of distant starlight. Physicists tell us that light travels at a constant rate. 186,000 miles per second. Because this universe is so vast, cosmologists have um, invented, uh, my, my tongue isn't woken up yet, have invented a unit of measurement called the light year, which is the distance that the light travels in a year. The math works out to this, 5.88 trillion miles a year. Because stars are so distant from the earth, it takes a distant starlight many years to travel to the earth. The light of every star that we see tonight, which is going to be cloudy so you won't see many, um, twinkling in the night sky was actually sent towards the earth many, many years ago. Maybe even centuries ago. For example, the stars that make up the Big Dipper which is the most famous constellation um, uh, range from 778 to 123 light years away from the Earth. That means, this is the key, that the next time you stand and look up at the night sky, at the Big Dipper, you are looking back in time. You are looking for the most part a starlight for the most part a starlight that began its journey earthward over a century ago it is possible that some or many of the stars in the big dipper no longer exist perhaps one or two of the stars in the handle or the drinking gird part are already 
gone. We do not know, nor will we know when with certainty until that star goes dark. Though a star may not exist anymore, the light has been traveling all this time and it has not reached us yet. Now here's where MacArthur uses it for the church at Sardis. In Revelation 3.1, Jesus said to the church of Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Here's what they were doing. They were living in the Big Dipper world. They were living with past glories that had far gone out already, but they celebrated it. powerful they were walking around with the appearance of a reputation of life but they were in reality dead because they were looking back and saying look at all that we did and meanwhile the big dippers stars are not even alive It's a powerful example of what God is teaching the church of Sardis. We say appearances can be deceiving, but nowhere is that truer than in the spiritual realm of churches. In dealing with the genuine spiritual state of both individuals and churches, appearances can be very deceiving. It's possible for an individual person or a church to appear to be alive spiritually but actually be dead now i've never said this about you all right but i will tell you that there are pastor friends of mine who have said this about their churches it looks great on the outside until you get to the inside they're saying the same thing as what's saying to sardis what's being said to Sardis this morning. It's impossible, again, for an individual church or person to appear to be alive spiritually, but actually, is it it is possible, excuse me, for an individual person or church to appear to be alive, but actually be dead. The Puritans called such an individual, this is a a direct quote from their, their literature, a gospel hypocrite. The word hypocrite actually is related to the Greek word for actor referring to someone who puts on a mask, not a COVID mask, a mask. When it comes to the Christian gospel, it refers to a person who goes through the forms, the outward motions of Christianity, but inside, inside, you find what Jesus found with the Pharisees. Listen to Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 through 28. It'll be on the screen. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside. But on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. But inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The same thing happened to a church as a whole. It can be living on past reputation of spiritual vitality, but instead, there's nothing going on spiritually, and there's really no vitality. The church is dead. 
Christ's words to this dead church stands as a timeless warning to all churches in all locations throughout all time. Any church can turn at some point in its history from vibrant witness, healthy doctrine, and a loving community of believers that is reaching out in its world with the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly. They can turn and begin a decline towards spiritual deadness, towards death as a congregation. This is a practical problem all over the world. But may I say, it is especially, particularly right here in the United States. Previously, vibrant churches are dying or have died. One poll shows that between, this poll rocks my world, it's the latest poll, between 8,000 and 10,000 local churches die every year. Every year. While only about a thousand new churches are planted every year. Why? Why do some previously flourishing local churches die? This is a question that today's passage will lead us to consider. It's also a question that Tom Rainer considered in his book. It's a weird title, I will give you that, but it's a good book. Autopsy of a Dead Church. In other words, a study of a dead church. That is a potent, a potent image, isn't it? The book stands as a warning to living churches. As Jesus said to the small remnant within the dead church at Sardis, you better wake up. You better strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Using this image and then this morning, we will do the sad work of visiting a cold morgue to see where the coroner pulled out the church and said, she's gone. The church at Sardis, we want to hear the description of how that corpse died. We will look into the fact of such a church so that we can be warned. We will ask the Lord to search our hearts and know our hearts. It is unwise, and I, and I, and I need to approach this, it is unwise for any church, no matter how healthy or vibrant, to read this letter to Sardis and say, well, thank God that isn't us. Because that's the first step towards it. Pride. Friends, do not fall into that thinking. Because in the hands of, a, of, a, of, in the hands of Satan, that can be used to destroy what we have. This is a fearsome weapon in the hand of God when we open our hearts in humility and look at what is going on. So let's dig in. Here's the first thing. Um, it's, on your, it's also a green sheet in your bulletin. Christ describes himself holding the seven spirits and the seven stars. Look at Wickler with me at verse 1, the first half of verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. As I pointed out before, in every one of these seven letters, Jesus is identifying himself by some aspect of the vision that he gave to the apostle John in chapter 1. To the church of Sardis, he describes himself as him who holds the seven spirits of God. So how do we understand this? In fact, it is a reference to him and the Holy Spirit at work. 
Now, why did John use seven spirits to describe the Holy Spirit? That's up for discussion. And anyone who says they have the answer on that, well, they beat out the 20 commentaries that I read this past week. Because no one has an answer. And there are times when we come to the book of Revelation, and we in Americans do not like this answer, but there are times when we have to say, I don't know. And it's okay. The imagery is so great in the book of Revelation that those who say that they have all the answers, I'm not so sure they have all the answers. Because I can give you 20 books in my library currently that say 20 different answers for every imagery that's given to us. So why did he use this? We don't know, but we know this. What Jesus is being clear about is, is that the Holy Spirit is a part of the work of the church. Here's what the Holy Spirit meant in Judaism. It'll be on the screen as well. There's two-fold reason for the Holy Spirit in Judaism. Number one is inspire prophecy. Number two is give life to what is dead. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's opening this letter to a dead church. Now, we're going to learn a little bit later on, and if I don't say this, you'll They're not completely dead. They're on the last half of life support. They're pretty dead, but they're not completely cut off yet. How do we know that? Well, let me just answer this while we're at it. What would you tell a church that's completely dead to wake up? There's a remnant there that is still doing what's right. And so he wakes them up later on. But the, the church in Sardis is dead. The evidence of the deadness is a lack of obvious activity of the Spirit of God there. The problem is made manifest by the fact that there was no encounter with the Spirit of God in the life of the church. You see, the Spirit gives life. When the Spirit is quenched, there is no life. Spiritual energy is defined by the Word of God. The Word of God is powerfully proclaimed. The worship of God is energetically flowing. The people are passionate about it. They want to be in worship. They don't just do it because it's Sunday and that's what we do. They do it because they love their Jesus. That's a spirit-filled church. The fruit of the Spirit is obvious in the people, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness. He also holds the seven stars. The seven stars represent the seven messengers of the churches. Some interpretations say they are perhaps pastors or preacher. A godly proclamation ministry sets the tone for the entire life of the church. I believe that one of the most significant things, if not the most significant thing, happens in the life of every church. It is the proclamation 
of the word. And yet that is the very thing, the very thing that many churches today are cutting. We're not asking the worship team to lead. I'm not talking about faith church, but we're not asking the worship team to give a couple of extra minutes. No, it's always pastor should cut a little bit of his sermon off if we go over. Now listen, I'm going to say this no matter whether I'm here or somebody else is here. This isn't about me. This is about every preacher that's out there. The proclamation of his word is so very important. It's why I spend a majority of my week doing it. And you say, you really do spend a majority of your week? Well, if you consider all day or half the day Monday and all day Thursday and half the day Friday a good portion of my week, then yes, I do. Reading every commentary I can, understanding it so I can bring the word like I know what I'm talking about. Instead of half in, half out. And so Jesus is saying here, listen, the proclamation of his word is so very important. And apparently the church in Sardis is not doing that. But number two, Christ presents the shocking conclusion to the church at Sardis. Here's what he says in the second half of verse 1. You've already heard it, but I'm going to read it again. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, Christ brings this shocking diagnosis to the church at Sardis, and he says, you are dead. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. It's not just even now that brings chills to me. Goosebumps. Can you imagine, just sit back and imagine for one minute, not, don't get too comfortable, um, but, but, but sit back and imagine for one minute that Jesus came in. Jesus has come into town September, this is 25th, 26th through the end of the next week, October the 2nd, and he's doing an analysis of Faith Church. And on October the 2nd, he's going to stand up on Worldwide Communion Sunday, and he's going to give us the results can you imagine Jesus saying, Faith Church, I know that you are alive, or you think you are alive, and you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. If that doesn't send chills down your back, check your heart rate. Because it should. should and I would say that whether I was preaching in St. David's or the church in Kutztown or the church in Len Hartsville or any EC church or any church that believes the Bible how does he know Jesus knows look, look, look what he says he knows because he sees their deeds he reads their hearts he sees the deeds. The fruits are dead. There's always a link between the heart, the nature, and the fruit. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. All Jesus has to do is look at the deeds. 
It says in John 15, 2, he cuts off every branch in me that, uh, that bears for no fruit. And those branches are collected and thrown into the fire and burned. That's how he knows. He looks at every person's deeds. He says, are they bringing life? Or are they bringing death? And by that decision, I can then make a call, Jesus on whether this is an alive church or a dead church. It's powerful. Notice what he doesn't say. Now again, it's a different day and age and you could argue that he wouldn't say this because that wasn't going on in that day. He doesn't say by the programs they run. He doesn't say by the money that's exchanged. He doesn't say by the pastor. He's part of it, but not all of it. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, I look at their deeds, period. It's powerful. It's absolutely powerful. They had a reputation of being alive, but were actually dead. That's, that's the first part of this. The church at Sardis had a reputation in the community of being alive, of containing life, but they were actually dead. Perhaps all the works that gained them that name and reputation had been done many, many years ago, like the Big Dipper. You know that illustration? That's where this is coming in. Why were they dead? The question is why. Why does this happen? Why was the church at Sardis dead? The cause of death is always the same. It's not a shock to you. It is sin, period. Romans 6, 3 says these words. The wages of sin is death. James 1, 14 through 15 says each one of you is tempted by his own evil desire. He's dragged away and enticed. Then after that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full growth, gives birth to death. That is how death happens. I like to, conf- I like to, to, to call James 1, 14 through 15, the, 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 the alligator role. Do you know what an alligator does when he gets a hold of a human being? It's not a fun sight. He does a roll. He rolls them because it it makes your brain go nuts and you don't know where you are. So he'll grab you and he will roll you and roll you and roll you. And guess what Satan does? He grabs you and then the birth happens and then the baby comes of sin and then there's death. That's what happens. And so sometimes people will say to me, as a pastor, they'll say, why can't you lighten up a little bit on this? Because every time sin happens in the church, it does not lead to life. It leads to more death. And so no, I won't lighten up on sin. It should be so serious that when someone is doing that, we should want to confront it. But what do we do? 
We get caught up in culture. I do myself. Sometimes I get caught up in things and I see them from culture standpoint and I say, well, it's not that bad. It's not as bad as that person over there. But it's still sin. And so when we allow it to happen in our church, every time it happens, it's another twirl in the alligator, I'll rhyme, swirl. Now let's remember, this church moved here in 1952. How many twirls do you think we've had? And we wonder why we're feeling beat up and tired and like death is on its doorstep. Sometimes we've allowed sin just to reign. People do whatever they want to do. Who cares? Don't call them. They may leave. That's the desire of Jesus in this in his passage. He's saying death came because apparently somebody in Sardis didn't deal with it. They made sin to be less than sin. It's not really that wrong. The specifics of how and why are not as important as the state of death. There is something in verse 4 that gives us a clue here, and here's what it says. I believe it'll be on the screen. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Now, this gives us a sense. Perhaps it's of immorality, but it it could be referring to false doctrine as well. Perhaps it was a matter of persecution, except as one commentator said, why would Satan persecute a dead church? That makes no sense, right? I mean, why would Satan try to knock off a dead church? It's already dead. The work is done. It's complete. Little by little, the spiritual vigor of this church can drain out. And so can happen in a church today. God's leaders can get old and die. The next generation comes along and they do not share the same passion, the same vision, and it fades away. The world starts to encroach with its relentless appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. The church can stop preaching the clear gospel of Christ to the surrounding community, or it can alter certain aspects of the message to tailor them to popular taste so that they can be more amendable to the surrounding community. Next, Christ commands the remnant. Here's what he says to the remaining people of this group first thing he says is wake up wake up strengthen what remains and is about to die for i have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my god remember therefore what you have received and heard and obeyed and repent let's take the wake up first wake up is in the present tense now you say to yourself well that's great to know pastor but what does that mean what it means is 
that when it's in the present tense in the Greek and in the Hebrew and in other, in other scripture passages, it means a continual thing. In other words, it's that annoying alarm clock that you set for six different times for it to go off. Six o'clock, 6.30, 6.45, 7 o'clock. Jesus is saying to the church, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up for eternity. Don't fall asleep behind a wheel. Wake up. All Christians individually were dead at one point. That's what David read for us earlier. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions, Ephesians say. But now you're alive in Christ and on and on. In the church of Sardis, though, it seems they had been chosen. They had chosen a tomb for themselves. They had willfully walked into deadness. He was calling on them to repent and walk out of their tomb to wake up, to to get out of their deadness. But they chose to just stay in it. Now many people have guessed it. Why? And I like the one answer. The one answer of why did they choose this this route instead of waking up? It's easy. We can just kind of go asleep. We're not going to fight for truth. We certainly don't have to have debates over whether this is true or not. We don't have to be clear in the gospel when we're dead. We don't have to look at our neighbors and our friends who claim to be Christian but live a different lifestyle and actually call them on their lifestyle when we're dead. It's easy just to roll over. Say, who cares anymore? And if you think for one minute that your pastor doesn't have those feelings, think again. You think I like being one of the few in the community that want to preach the word unadulterated and get prostituted persecuted for it get ignored by groups for it my heart jumps when people say oh you're just you're just closed minded no my heart sinks because this is the ultimate to me I don't care what anybody else says. This is my marching orders. And so Jesus brings this to this point, and he says, listen, you were once dead, and now you are alive. It seems that they have chosen a tomb for themselves again. But why? Because it was easy. He also commands them to do one more thing, to strengthen 
what remains and is about to die. In verse 4, it indicates that there was a remnant of people who had not soiled their clothes, he says. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. They were not blameless. They were part of the side into darkness, but they did they managed to keep themselves from defilement of doctrine and lifestyle. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that these people who walk in this white garb, who do not have soiled clothes anymore, somehow were a part of the slide of the church, but they didn't fall for the rest like the rest of the church did. And so there's some hope for them. And he says, listen, strengthen what remains. The, main, the meaning here in the original language is to say that they need to be spiritually strong in spite of what's going on wrong inside of them or exact or external obstacles because to be drifted away like the rest of the church is to die. And so what he's saying is, is that it doesn't matter what's happening out here on the other sides of these walls. It doesn't matter what's happening in our community. It, it can bring us down, yes, but we need to be so strengthened in this word that it doesn't allow us to drift away to their way of thinking. So he says to the church of Sardis, listen, wake up, strengthen what remains, because if you don't get into this word, oh, friends, and I see it, can I, can I, I'm going to be pretty frank with you this morning. Listen, I see this. Every year I serve, every year I serve, from, from 20 years ago till now, I see it. This, this becomes less and less important. What I believe becomes more important. So if this disagrees, if what I believe in my heart disagrees with this, well, then we just put this away.